The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Einstein said he could never understand it all. Planets are spinning through space. Smile upon your face. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying and What is Chen Selling. Chen will be with me in just a moment or two, uh, and Roger Wiegand will be with me in the last segment of the second hour of today's show. We have a uh, special one-time only introductory offer so that you can try the newsletters of Chen Lin, Roger Wiegan, and myself. And call Claudio Bossi at 718-457-1426. That's 718-457-1426. Um, or go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, to uh, learn more about our services and also to sign up for those trial subscriptions and other subscriptions as well. I should mention, again, I do this very frequently because I think it's so uh, important that you know that Chen Lin has had a, a spectacular uh, record, really. When you think about it, he took $5,400 of his wife's IRA back in 2003 and turned that into just shy of $1.1 million by April of this year. Chen has done extremely well, and that's one of the reasons, uh, the primary reason that Chen's with us. He has some great investment ideas. He shares those with you on this show from time to time, and so I'm really happy to have Chen with us. Again, he'll be, he'll be with me, as I said, just in a moment or two. 
Uh, we do have some free things that you can uh, go to, jayswatchlist.com, for companies that are uh, on my radar screen. Another place I should direct your attention to and haven't recently is webeatthestreet.com, webeatthestreet.com for Roger Wiegand's daily blog. You can go there as well. There's an upcoming event I want to tell you about, just to, just to let you know about it. There's a Kitco e-conference that I am participating in. It's on September 12th and 13th. You'll be able to hear it live, and it will be archived for some 90 days after that time frame as well. But I'm going to be speaking, providing a PowerPoint uh, presentation there, talking to you about why I think this is the buying opportunity of a lifetime for gold mining shares. I'll give you some charts and, and statistics and so forth to make my point. Um, also, other people that will be speaking at that event uh, President, or I should say Ron Paul, uh, James Dines, Rick Rule, uh, Brent Cook, Lawrence Ralston, David and Eric Coffin, Dr. Mark Faber, John Nadler, John Hathaway, Peru Saxena, Joe Martin, Frank Holmes, uh, Michael Berry, and David Morgan. So I'm looking forward to that, and uh, I hope that you'll take the opportunity to tune in. Uh, in effect, this is an electronic event that looks very much like the speaker lineup at the, at the gold shows, the various shows that I go to speak at in Vancouver, San Francisco, Toronto, New York, or wherever. This time, though, you don't need to get on an airplane, don't have to call uh, and make hotel reservations, can simply watch it on your screen uh, in your office or in your home. I would like to mention that... Um, I would like to welcome questions from you, the listeners, if you want to. If you're interested in sending us questions, you can do questions for the number four Taylor at gmail.com. Questions number four Taylor at gmail.com. About 90% of the people that listen to this show listen uh, on downloads, uh, on podcasts, if you will. They download the, li- the show, and you can listen to it. It's, it all, the, all the shows are there yet on the archives. Since we started a couple of years ago, you can listen to all those shows. You can also call in. We seldom seem to have time to take calls, but if you have something that's really bugging you, something you'd really like to get through to us on, give a try. Call in 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790. That's a call-in number, and the engineer will let me know you're on, and if I can at all take your call, I will do so. I want to thank each of you again for listening to this show. It's because of people like you and you're telling your friends that we are doing very well. Our numbers have grown very dramatically. We are the number one business, uh, the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. So thank you very much. And of course, I want to thank our corporate sponsors for making our show financially viable. But not only do they make it viable, I think the companies that are sponsors on this show are providing some very good uh, opportunities, in many cases investment opportunities. At least you're getting a chance to hear some great stories, some companies that are really providing, uh, mostly in the gold mining industry, uh, that are providing, I think, um, very good opportunities going forward into the future. Uh, In the second hour of this show, we're going to be talking to one of the few non-gold mining companies on my list, Athabasca Uranium. Uh, will be with us. Uh, Gil Snyder will be talking to him. And uh, in just a few minutes, I'm going to be talking to Harry Miller. He's the president of Clifton Star. It's a rising gold mining exploration company uh, in Quebec. In any event, let me name the sponsors and give a big thanks to all of them who are our sponsors for the first hour of today's show. Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Sullivan Gold Corp., Dasha Capital, Richfield Ventures, Golden Minerals, Clifton Star, Silvercrest Mining, Duncan Park Holdings, and Swiss America. Today's main guest, today's main guest is Dr. Bert Folsom. He's a history professor at Hillsdale College in Michigan. Now, conventional wisdom holds that it was the policies of Franklin Delano Roosevelt that got us out of the Great Depression. 
Professor Folsom will demonstrate that that simply was not the case. In fact, I believe he will pretty much turn that uh, on head, on its head, basically, and, and really illustrate that it's completely the opposite. That if anything, Roosevelt prolonged the Depression in the 1930s. And this is very important because our current president likes to consider himself a modern-day FDR. Well, if he is, we may be in big, big trouble. Actually, as most of you know, probably figured out, I think we are in big trouble. And that's why, uh, you know, I think that we need to invest in gold. That's certainly a major reason for investing gold, because the system is breaking down in many different ways. Uh, we only have a few minutes in this segment before we talk to Harry Miller, uh, but I want to welcome Chen Lin with me. Uh, Chen, uh, welcome again to our show. Thank you, Jay. Now, Chen, you and I were chatting a little bit earlier today, and you have some uh, thoughts you want to pass on to our listeners about the gold mining sector, and in particular, uh, the, what the month of September means for gold bullion as well as the mining sector. Could you explain? Yes. Um, I did some calculations according to the Bloomberg uh, statistic for the past 17 years. So in the month of September, gold stock appreciate 8.34% in one month, September. Okay, all the rest, 11 months combined, is 4.67%. So basically, you are talking about almost two-thirds of your profit in a year will happen in the month of September for gold investment, you know, if you invest in gold stocks. Okay, now, how many, now that's an average over a long, how many years, Chen? 17 years. In the over process. 17 years, okay. So we're going back before the bull market started, really, and gold, the bull market started about 2002, 2003, something like that. Uh, so you have a lot of years in which gold probably didn't do particularly well in September or any time of the year. It's right. factored in there. So if now that we're in a bull market, you might expect, uh, I don't know if September is better than the other months necessarily. I suppose you're suggesting it is. But, you know, we're in a bull market now. So these Septembers, I think, it would be interesting to go back and look at the Septembers prior to the bull market starting. But uh, in any event, do you have an explanation for that? Why would September might uh, possibly be a better month? Oh, in general, because September is a good month for uh, for gold, okay, and uh, because all the jewelry makers uh, they buy in they do for Indian holiday, for Christmas, or Chinese New Year, they buy in a few months ahead. Usually, it happens starting September, okay, and then you know on the summer, in the summer, usually stocks are weak, you know, they're thinly traded, and in September people come back from vacation, and then they look at their you know the general market, they say, okay, we want to buy gold and gold stocks. So in particular, that's why in particular gold stocks are doing extremely well in September. That's just historically. Okay, Chen, now you know the general market has not been that great. You know my feelings about the market. I don't know that you necessarily are as bearish as I am on the market in general. But let's say that we have a real decline here in the equity markets. How do you think the gold shares will fare in this declining market, and let's say that gold holds up well and gold doesn't go down, it just sort of treads water at $1,200, $1,300, somewhere in this range. How do you think the gold shares will fare if the rest of the market gets killed? The rest of the market killed, gold stock will be pulled down. Um, uh, you know, sometimes a little, sometimes depends on market psychology. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I found in general was in the recent past couple of weeks, uh, we already started to see the decoupling between gold stock and general market. So on the very bad tape, for example, you know, on, you know, yesterday, in a very bad tape, uh, gold doing well, gold stock doing even better. Mm -hmm. so I have a, you know, uh, recently some of my gold silver stock 
just going through the roof and going very, very rapidly, going out very, very rapidly and responding to market news. Like uh-huh. last week, uh, Alaska, it just went up like 30% in one week. Yeah, that's uh, well, Alexco, and I might just add though that Chen, uh, it's not like you're throwing darts at these at these stocks. You do your homework, uh, and you definitely have preferences. You're very picky when it comes to choosing your stocks. It's not just any old stock, and timing is very important to you as well. So uh, yours are going through the roof. A lot of others are performing well, but I have an idea that yours are probably doing better than average. So congratulations, Chen, again uh, for doing extremely well with your picks. Now, Chen. You know, we, we've got to go to break now. Uh, it's time for commercial break, but we've got coming on next with us Harry Miller. He's the president of Clifton Star. I know you are an investor in Clifton Star, so can you hang on with us while we uh, uh, to, to perhaps give a question or two in to Harry? Absolutely. Okay, great. All right, folks, so don't go away. We're going to take a commercial break, and we're coming right back with an exciting gold exploration company in Quebec. Uh, Harry Miller will be with us. He's the president of Clifton Star, so don't go away. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, InMet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Solidan Gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Showindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property and with this expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year highlighting a very positive and economical project and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.solidan.com to learn more. 
Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green-tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am pleased to have with me Harry Miller. He is the president of Clifton Star Resources. Clifton Star is a sponsor to this show. And uh, as such, they make it possible to bring you many great guests, like uh, Bert, Dr. Bert, Bert Folsom, who will be with us in, uh, later in the show. And we've had many, many others over the, over the week. So we're thankful to, to Harry Miller and Clifton Starr. But not only uh, do these companies help us in that regard, they also uh, are providing us with some great investment opportunities and ideas. And so today I'm really pleased to have Harry with me to talk about Clifton Starr, it trades on the Toronto Exchange uh, under the symbol uh, CFO and trades on the over-the-counter markets in the U.S. under CFMSF. Last I looked, early in the day at least, it was at uh, just shy of $4 in, in U.S. money anyway. So uh, welcome, Harry, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hey, it's a pleasure being here, and thank you very much for uh, having me on, Jane. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you for being a sponsor as well. Uh, you, Harry, uh, are operating in Quebec, right? That is correct. We are in a uh, an area south uh, southwestern Quebec. Uh, our properties are almost uh, towards the uh, Ontario border. Okay, and you have a flagship property. We do. We're calling it the Duparquet Gold Camp, and these are a series of uh, former gold producers uh, with some minor silver. Um, they stopped operating in uh, 1956. 
uh, and uh, and they've been lying fallow all that time. So we're very fortunate to be able to secure them for the shareholders of Clifton Star. Uh, we then um, embarked on a drilling campaign of something in the nature of 100,000 meters, sufficient for us to get a um, 43-101 resource of, um, of approximately 2.6 million ounces. Uh, and then since that time, we were able to attract uh, OSISCO, uh, and uh, we entered into a $107 million um, funding with them. Uh, and they've, um, as of January of this year, uh, they've embarked on a 120,000-meter program, which I think will probably go beyond that by the time we get to the end of the year. Uh, and it's a very ambitious program as far as we're concerned, with uh, 10 drills on the property at, uh, at a given time. And uh, we expect this to be, um, uh, we'll, we'll expect sometime in the beginning of the new year that uh, we will have a 43-101 update. All right. Well, that's a, that is a lot of drilling, uh, Harry. Um, could you give our listeners a sense if you've got 2.6 million ounces now in a 43101 uh, measure? Can you give our listeners some sense of what the the potential is, and how much do you know about the gold bearing structure? So, could, is there is there a lot of drilling? I mean, is they're going to drill 120,000 uh, meters? Uh, is that going to be like step out drilling, uh, infill drilling, or what kind of drilling will that be? It's a combination. Uh, they've started out on a grid program going across the cyanide porphyry structure uh, that extends for some uh, six-plus uh, six kilometers along what is known as the Porcupine Destor Fault. Now, mm -hmm. this is a deformation zone that starts around the Timmins area of our Ontario, and it, and it goes in a wide arc uh, into, uh, into Quebec. And the Timmins area, if people are not familiar, has produced something in excess of 120 million ounces of gold. Mm. Uh, and it continues to find uh, a new uh, new plays there, which is always astounding how they keep going back to the same camp and and finding um, finding new discoveries. Uh, and as far as we're concerned, as I said, uh, this these are farmer producers that produce somewhere around a million two ounces from all the 30s into 1956. Mm -hmm. And we've gone back in there with the campaign and and followed up now with the Cisco. I would would not be surprised that uh, sometimes towards the end of this year that we uh, we will have something in the nature of five to six million ounces uh, in hand and probably forty three one hundred one eligible as well. Mm -hmm. So um, this is the upside. Um, we are looking at and Cisco is looking at a combination of open pit, um, and they were looking at it as it compares to their property, their flagship property, the Malartic, but with us. As opposed to Osisco, we have the potential from underground. Osisco's underground is now played out. They're only looking at uh, the open pit, albeit still 11, 12 million uh, ounces. But once that's gone, uh, there's nothing left. Whereas with ours, we still have a, a large potential open pit or a series of pits and then the underground. And um, if you look at um, Agnico Eco's Laurent mine down the way, I mean, they've been drilling now. Um, and mining for, uh, I don't know, for a whole lot of years, and they still keep finding uh, more ore. And they're mm -hmm. down, I think, are they not down to about six or 7,000 feet? All right. So yes. we, have that, we have that ability, we have that potential, and that could be huge. 
Harry, uh, when you're talking about, I know this is this is um, not entirely speculation. You're not throwing pulling these numbers out of the air, but let's say you're able to find five to six million ounces with all that drilling. I it would seem logical. Do you think that uh, that five to six million ounces? Are you talking about that being open pit or a combination of open? Pit? I, I would have to say at this juncture uh, a combination. Right. We've got um, five parallel structures or, or zones, and they're pretty continuous uh, as they go along the porphyry um, uh, cyanide uh, complex. Um, and so, um, again, we're looking at potential open pit, then underground, uh, and that, um, that, as I say, could be, could be huge. So right. uh, I... uh, all this is yet to come, and obviously it's speculation. Sure. Uh, but nevertheless, it's, uh, we've... Um, with the drilling we've done so far, and uh, we are uh, we're pretty sanguine about our our chances of finding them. Okay, Harry, I've got Chen Lin with me. Uh, Chen, do you have a question for Harry? Yes. Hi, Harry. Um, hi, Chen. I heard you are, from you describe and also other shareholder. Uh, Cisco really drilled many many holes, and a lot of results are coming back. Uh, especially, we are interested in the main zone. That potentially can be a huge discovery. Do you have any timeline when those drilling results will come will be published? Well, I'm glad you brought that question up because that has been a, an issue. The fact that Osusco is the operator of the project and they control the flow of information, um, so um, uh, they they are very careful about when they get it. Go through a QA QC process um, before they release the news, uh, so we fully understand. Uh, um, how they're uh, how they're operating, and they're, they're we're we're delighted with uh, with the participation that that Osisco is providing on this uh, on this project. And nonetheless, we're obviously anxious, and our shareholders are anxious to know. Um, we do expect, um, and we were expecting a sort of a steady flow of information. Um, I, it's conceivable we'll get it uh, this week. It could be as early as tomorrow. Uh, and I expect then after that, probably a, a regular flow of information every two to three weeks is, is what we come to understand as a result of uh, discussions with Osisco. Um, I should mention uh, for those listeners uh, that may not be all that familiar uh, with your operation up there that you are operating in an area where infrastructure is not a big problem. You've got labor Some of the things that are problematic in other parts of the world are not problematic for you there, right, Harry? Absolutely right, Jay. We we're very fortunate. We have the roads. Um, we have power that, uh, in fact, uh, goes over the property. Uh, there was at one time a railroad line, a spur going in there, and uh, the bed is still there for the railroad. Um, we have um, obviously low cost power, being in Quebec, uh, mm-hmm. and Quebec is a terrific jurisdiction. For every dollar we put in the ground, uh, they do provide up to 40% back on a refund. So um, we've already received our first check uh, from our drilling. Uh, they're slow, but nevertheless, we do get paid. Uh, and Osisco will obviously get uh, a refund as well for the drilling they do. So um, we have an area where uh, the resident debt for the town being there was the old mine, and there are still people in the neighborhood that uh, operate the drills and who are um, who are mining savvy and that uh, lend a great deal of support to uh, for our uh, for our uh, for our team up there. Harry, let me ask you: Your stock price was upwards uh, to eight bucks. Uh, you know, a few months back, earlier in the spring, I should say, it's down around four now. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, where do you think, uh, you know, how do you compare in your mind with some of your peers? Well, it's hard for me to make comparisons uh, at, at, this, at this stage, at this early stage. Uh, but one has to look at the amount of shares we have outstanding, uh, fully diluted, something in the nature of about uh, 36, 37 million. Uh-huh. Um, and so we, we've, got a, we've got a reasonable market cap. And I think uh, once the market, uh, and we reveal the, the 43-101 update, unfortunately it will not be summer till probably January, February of next year. But once they see that, I think they'll fully appreciate what we have. We are working towards developing maps, getting context in news releases, and I think that will help a lot uh, for uh, new investors and our shareholders to fully understand what we're doing, how this is being uh, uh, handled, and uh, get a better grasp of what this potential looks like. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's not to be underestimated. You have 37 million shares only, which is a small number these days. Harry, it begs the question for me, you, are, do the insiders own a good chunk of the shares of this company? Well, um, the breakdown is about 45% are owned by institutions, and these are major institutions in, in, in uh, Canada and the United States. Um, the insiders control, I think, about 10 to 12%, mm-hmm. uh, and then the rest is um, retail. Well, it's important to me, and I know that Chen looks at this as well, that we like to see people that are running the company have some skin in the game uh, so that their interests are aligned with those of the shareholders. So I think that's very important. One more question before I let you go, Harry, if you don't mind. I always like to ask people this because I think it helps to keep the discussion real because this, you know, mining is a very, very risky business. We're in what I call the buying opportunity of a lifetime for gold mining shares for reasons that I get into on this program on a regular basis. But what do you think your biggest worry is? What's the biggest concern? What is the biggest risk that people have if they buy your shares right now? <laughs> That's a question. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't see a whole lot of risk out there at this stage of the game. I've got to be candid with you. Yeah. Um, okay. With uh, the new slow that will be coming up with the program ahead, uh, I, I, quite frankly, only see upside. All right. Well, certainly does look good for the sector right now. No question about it. I mean, one of the few sectors in the in the economy that looks good to me, anyway, is the gold mining sector for reasons I've been talking about on a regular basis. I'm sorry that's all the time we have, Harry. I know we could go on for a lot longer. You have a lot more to tell us, but people can keep up with what you're doing. What is your website so people can track your progress? Well, that is CliftonStarResources.com. Uh, and uh, they can do that. I, and quite frankly, I'd like to be able to be asked back to talk about it at a future time as we get more results. We'll have to try to do that, Harry. Thank you very much. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with our main guest this week is Dr. Burton Folsom. He's a history professor at Hillsdale College. He's going to have some uh, comments about the New Deal. Was it a New Deal or Raw Deal that FDR gave us? And what kind of a deal are we getting now from the second coming of FDR? That is, the current president likes to compare himself to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We'll have some ideas along those lines, I'm sure, from Dr. Burton Folsom in just a minute. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
markets up or down. Or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt, and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Richfield Ventures Corp. is a publicly traded junior mining company on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol RVC. Led by an experienced and dedicated team, Richfield is systematically drilling 25,000 meters of core in 2010 on its Blackwater Gold Project in central British Columbia, where the primary goal is to discover a world-class bulk tonnage gold deposit. With $5 million in treasury and 40 million shares fully diluted, Richfield and its shareholders are poised for a major discovery. Go to richfieldventures.com. CA for further information. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. Solidan Gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Showindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property and with this, expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year, highlighting a very positive and economical project and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.solidan.com to learn more voice america business network the bottom line in business welcome to the human race some kind of love and run i'll be sliding down i'll be gliding down try not to try too hard you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm very pleased to have with me Dr. Burton Folsom, Jr. He is a history professor at Hillsdale College and senior historian at the Foundation for Economic Education, Irvington, New York. 
He is a regular columnist for The Freeman and has written articles for The Wall Street Journal and American Spectator, among other publications. Folsom has authored several books, such as Urban Capitalists, The Myth of the Robber Barons, uh, now in its third edition, where he revises a commonly held views about the role of capitalism in the social development of the Industrial Revolution. More recently, he wrote New Deal, or Raw Deal, which takes a sharp, critical new look at FDR's government policies that hindered economic recovery from the Great Depression and are still hurting America today. In this book, he exposes the idyllic legend of FDR as a myth of epic proportions. Uh, Folsom received his uh, Ph.D. in economic, uh, or in uh, American history, I should say, from the University of Pittsburgh in 1976, and since 1988 has served as editor um, of Continuity, that's a journal of history. Welcome, Dr. Folsom, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, Jay, it's good to be with you today. It's, it's really a pleasure to have you, and, and I would like to ask you just to tell our listeners a little bit about Hillsdale College. Maybe many of them have never heard of Hillsdale College. It's a college that I'm vaguely familiar with, and I think of it, when I think of Hillsdale College, I think of it along the lines of Grove City College, another little small college that's in western Pennsylvania. You're in Michigan, I believe, but could you tell our listeners just a little bit about Hillsdale College and, and how and why it's a unique place? Right. Hillsdale is about 1,300 students. You're right. It's in Hillsdale, Michigan. It's unique because it takes no federal funds. Mm. None. Uh, we don't receive, and we're talking here about uh, veterans, grants, and this kind of thing. Anybody who has a federal money coming into the school, what happens is if we take you, we match that fund, and you do not come in with federal money. Mm. Every student in here uh, is either paying his or her own way, or we are funding them out of scholarships with money that we raised ourselves. Mm. Interesting. So then that means that the federal government has no leverage over you to say you have to view economics in a certain way or you have to view history or you have to look at psychology or something in a way that we think is appropriate. They, don't, they can't tell you that, right? They can't. And, uh, of course, that happens on campus after campus. And federal money often is more subtle than that because what happens is federal money is made available for study in certain disciplines or certain fields. And so colleges go running after the federal money. And, of course, to get uh, – renewals of grants, it often helps to have conclusions that are very supportive mm -hmm. of things that the federal government is endorsing. We don't have any of that here. Our research is independent. The books we write, independent. Uh, as I say, the buildings that we build on campus, uh, the students that are funded, the salaries for faculty, all of that is raised by private money. Very, very interesting. Well, how many colleges in the country do you think are like that? Grove City, perhaps, huh? Grove City, uh, yes, and Hillsdale are really the only two uh, that I know of, and uh, none, uh, no college has come to the fore. Uh, the reason Hillsdale and Grove City, of course, came to public attention was put because we had a Supreme Court case mm -hmm. where both Hillsdale and Grove City College were uh, up before the Supreme Court because they said that if we took a, a basic federal grant that was given to a student, they have the, what's called a BEOG, Basic Economic Opportunity Grants, that, that are just available to students who, who are in poor economic conditions. They get that money automatically. That, they said that if, if those type of students come into our school, we therefore are subject to federal regulation. We said that was an arrangement between the school and the student. The Supreme Court decided that if we took those students and took the federal aid, that we were liable to federal regulation. And so what we had to do, we had to... We, we had 
had to meet about it, and we decided uh, we still don't want to have the type of federal supervision and regulation that our founders of this country so much wanted colleges to avoid. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we decided every student who came here, we would, in effect, raise private money to 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 uh, uh, so to give a scholarship to that student if we wanted that student which means for example in this era where where tuition is typically around twenty five thousand dollars a year which is Hillsdale's a little bit under that but about twenty five thousand it means that if we want to give a student say half scholarship uh, we would have to raise the $12,500 privately. Now, if a student comes in with a federal grant and says, hey, yeah, but I have this federal money and I can go to another school, if we want the student, we have to compete and offer, raise that money privately to, in effect, bid for the student who has automatic federal money. We have 1,300 students. They are wonderful students. They're independent-minded students. Uh, all views are expressed on campus, and it's a delightful atmosphere. Yeah. Well, I have to ask you then if, you, if there's only a couple of, of you, uh, your kind of colleges in the country, then certainly this must have something to do with the sort of, we don't hear diversity of opinion. Let's say my area is economics. And so sure. when I turn on CNBC, there's like an occasional guy that comes on with maybe some Austrian economics ideas, but for the most part, it's Keynesian. That's right. Um, and so... Is this why? Is this why we're sort of goose-stepping along in America that nobody thinks for themselves? I mean, it's been said that if nobody's, you know, if everybody thinks alike, nobody's thinking. Jay, I think you've put your finger on it. I think that's exactly what's happening. The Keynesian Revolution dominated on college campuses starting in the 1930s. It really swept through in the 40s, which is interesting because uh, I argue it was discredited in the 40s mm -hmm. because uh, after World War II, we refused to prime the pump and stimulate demand with massive federal spending after World War II. We cut back, we cut tax rates, and that's what got us the recovery to escape from the Great Depression. And thus, Keynesian was discredited uh, in the mid-1940s. But it still, it dominates on campus after campus. And, of course, federal money is going to, to all these campuses. Uh, the economists, many of them uh, who are involved in this, have every incentive to praise the role of the federal government. In Hillsdale College, uh, we don't do that. We, we look at the way markets work, and we find that markets work very well. And to make a parallel to our current crisis, when we have gone for heavy stimulus package spending, it has always, I repeat, always been a disaster. Well, let's see if we can connect the dots here. The federal government likes to get bigger. It, it's got a bureaucracy. People want their cushy jobs. Yes. And so as long as they can keep people believing that government spending is a good thing for the overall welfare of the country then i guess they can they can keep the populace uh, domicile keep it keep people tranquil and keep them uh, on the same track and it and it serves their interest and then if the government controls the uh, intelligentsia then they, there we go right I think we have had the situation you just described there as operative political policy ever since the 1930s. Franklin, of course, we've always had this. Even early in our history, we had people who, politicians who gave uh, minor subsidies, say the Transcontinental Railroad subsidy or protective tariffs. Here and there, we've always had some federal intervention. But it becomes a big item in the 1930s under, federal, uh, under Franklin Roosevelt. And he exactly did it the way you just described. In other words, federal aid is targeted to key congressional districts, key congressmen to build roads or return pork to those districts to help win elections 
uh, at that time. And, of course, people get sucked into it. You get federal money for a road. You think it's a good thing. You want federal money to continue. You're not looking at where that money is coming from. You only see the project that was built by the money. Mm -hmm. And you don't realize tax rates have to go up to support that. Thus, we have an unbelievably high tax rate uh, now compared with what we had before the 1930s. Well, let's take a look at some of the content in your book. Uh, by the way, the only book that I am familiar with at this point in time that you've written is The New Deal or Raw Deal. Uh, and uh, I, I want to I sure. go back and look at some of your earlier work. But let's just, uh, if we can just take a look at that. And what you're saying, in, a, in essence, the book is saying that Roosevelt's been cracked up to be this great uh, economic president, the president that pulled us out of the Great Depression with all of this spending. You're saying nonsense. It wasn't true at all. In fact, you have a great quote uh, in the book, if I can just pick it out, from the Secretary of the Treasury, Morgenthau, yes. who, who I think you pointed out was a great personal friend of the President's. Well. He was. And if you would allow me, I'd like to just read this to our listeners. Go ahead. Uh, this is from page two of your book. We have tried spend. This is uh, uh, Morgenthau, a Treasury Secretary, saying, We have tried spending money. We are spending more than we have ever spent before, and it does not work. And I have just one interest, and if I'm wrong... Somebody else can have my job. I want to see this country prosperous. I want to see people get a job. I want to see people get enough to eat. We have never made good on our promises. I say after eight years of this administration, we have just as much unemployment as we were as when we started and an enormous debt to boot, end of quote. So there's the Secretary of the Treasurer after, uh, Treasury after eight years saying the policy was a total failure, and yet we have this belief today that it was not a failure. Is this, does this go back to this educational thing, this educational system we were just speaking of, where lies or, or, or falsehoods are taught and, and just passed on from generation to generation? I, you're right, and part of another part of it is people just don't understand and aren't operating correctly with with the economic information that's available. Mm -hmm. Morgenthau, Roosevelt's Secretary of Treasury, described it accurately. He said. Uh, he's the Treasury Secretary, and he said, yeah. I've been working with this for eight years. And here we had 20%, Jay, 20% unemployment. Before the Great Depression, the highest rate of unemployment we had ever had in U.S. history was 17%, and that was just very briefly in the 1890s. Here we have a whole decade of double-digit unemployment, and in 1939, right toward the end of Roosevelt's second term, it's sitting on 20%. Wow. An obvious failure. The Keynesians came in and said, aha, the reason it's so high, we have not spent enough. Mm. We need more deficit spending. The tax rate was already, Jay, at 79% mm. on top incomes. And we had a special corporate tax that was put in place. We had a minimum wage law that was put in, which, of course, discourages employers from hiring people. And we had uh, unions were given uh, extra power in the 1930s that they didn't have before with the Wagner Act. And so the economy was simply reeling. We didn't get really out of the Great Depression until after World War II because you can't count soldiers going off to war is counting really in the reduction of unemployment because we have to then go to deficit spending to, to pay for them. The, when the war was over is when we finally began to get the tax rates down. The corporate tax was slashed in 1946 from 90 to 37 percent. Finally, investors felt we can invest again and we begin to see the economy recover and we go to a 3.9% unemployment rate in 1946. At last, we had economic sense in the American economy and the Great Depression was over. Oh. 
Well, it's, it sounds like the policies are being reenacted again. And in the second hour of this today's show, I want to get to that and, and, and get your take on, uh, you know, the parallels between what's going on now and what happened in the 30s. Uh, but I'd like to go back a little bit and talk about Roosevelt when he ran for office. He promised to balance the budget, and yet he turned around and did exactly the opposite, didn't he? He did. And what's discouraging about that, Jay, I think, is that when he did that and was able to get away with it, it encouraged politicians to be disrespectful toward the truth. Mm-hmm in ways that were extreme even for politicians. <laughs> in other words, yeah. we, we, to some extent we have to grade politicians on the curb, curve. There's always yeah. a little hyperbole, but it, it increased dramatically in the 1930s. Roosevelt promised balanced budgets. Then he got in and immediately went into huge spending, which is, of course, why the Depression was perpetuated. Mm-hmm. But, see, he was building interest groups. In other words, if he can raise taxes on the rich people, which are 1% to 2% of the population, yeah. distribute those benefits to select people all over the country, which are larger groups of voters, he can win elections even though the economy is in the tank. Right. And that's what he did. That's what he did. So we had a 20% unemployment level back in those days. Um, do you have a sense of how those rates, unemployment rates, might translate into today if we use the same accounting methods? There have been minor changes, but but I'll tell you, the uh, uh, it, w- it would be extreme even today. You may have familiar. So a lot of people say that some of the people, because uh, if, if they haven't been looking for a job in the last six months, they, they they aren't counted on the statistics. Thus, unemployment today might be as much as fifteen percent mm-hmm. uh, if you count that in. But still, unemployment under Franklin Roosevelt was significantly worse than what we have today. We, we, at no point in Roosevelt's first two terms was unemployment as good as we have it today. Mm-hmm. Even if you were to look at 15%, it would be Exactly, because he never got it below 15%. Yeah. But 10 years after the crash, uh, you were saying in 1939, it was still at 20%. That's right. It had no fluctuations uh, from 15, yeah. during his first two terms, it fluctuated from 15 to 25%. Well, so Roosevelt's, um, Roosevelt, in my view, can only be thought of as a socialist. Maybe, maybe you could use some other labels like fascist or whatever. But <laughs> the point is that, that uh, socialism, fascism, they're, they're basically the same thing when it comes down to it. It's government intervention in, the, in our lives and in the economy, and it's statist economics, uh, statist policies, whatever you want to call them. So they were at least geared, uh, at least the public thought, as you said, you can tax the 1% or 2% of the, of the top income people and redistribute it to the masses and you gain their favor. How did the lower and middle classes fare during the 1930s, though? How, were, were they better off? No. Uh, we, we had declines throughout most of the 1930s. And there would be times when you'd get a bit of an upswing, but it would never be permanent. And it would never be permanent because investors never had a, an incentive to seriously make investments. Right. So you would sometimes get a, an upward tick in fluctuation, but you never had anything that was durable during the 1930s. Uh, well, because, of course, if you're going to tell people who are uh, entrepreneur at the entrepreneur level who have enough to start a company or contribute a large amount to founding a company, if you tell them that their profits, that their income is going to be taxed at the top level at 79%, then they're simply going to say, well, I don't know if I want to give four out of every five dollars 
on my marginal rate right. to the federal government, and so they just simply don't invest. And of course, Roosevelt then went after these people for doing that. He would target them, and we had we had the use of the IRS. Roosevelt's son Elliot one time said, "Well, I'm I'm sorry to have to admit it, but my father." Uh, Franklin was the first one to use the IRS for political purposes, and mm. of course, that's true. He would go after people who opposed him in public and who were wealthy, trying to get extra money from them, and then he would use that money he got from them to give to competitors. For example, he did an, uh, an IRS audit of Moses Annenberg, who edited the Philadelphia in, uh, the Inquirer, uh-huh. he, uh, actually the owner of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Pennsylvania was a swing state. And so he audited Annenberg and put him in prison and had a $7 million fine. Then he turned around and gave a $1 million subsidy from that to the the Democratic newspaper in Philadelphia. Oh, Oh my goodness. Yeah, David Stern. And so Stern got a million dollars, and Annenberg got minus seven million, and then the Democrats were able to carry Pennsylvania in both 1936 and 1940. Isn't that interesting? Dirty politics. No wonder Reagan, uh, the famous quote from Ronald Reagan, he said, they, they say that politics is the second oldest profession, and I've been, a lot, I've been around it long enough to know it has a great deal in common with the oldest profession. <laughs> well, he grew up. <laughs> yeah, when Reagan turned 21, Roosevelt was elected, and, of course, Roosevelt was in office until Reagan was 30, 35, I guess, or 34. So that, that's a long time uh, to, to, to be watching Franklin Roosevelt, so Reagan knew whereof he spoke. Yeah, indeed. Uh, in your in your opinion, then, what caused the Great Depression? It was uh, deficit spending. Was it spending? Uh, was it monetary? Uh, was it the monetary um, system uh, the, under the Federal Reserve, or what caused it? Well, that's an important question to ask, Jay, because Roosevelt and others tried to argue that it was business people mishandling their money. Mm-hmm. And therefore, because they made bad investments and got us into the Great Depression, and they weren't paying their workers enough, and this kind of thing, doesn't it sound kind of familiar with today? To that it was the bankers, it was the the yeah. bad loans that were made, and all that stuff. Right. But actually, if you look at this more carefully, we we have a lot of modern economic uh, writing on this that has been illuminating. Uh, some of this goes back to Milton Friedman. Friedman made the argument that the Federal Reserve was manipulating interest rates in a poor way. They raised them in, uh, in, after 1929 and thus made money harder to borrow, and that discouraged investors. And so we have the, the idea that the Federal Reserve uh, improperly intervened in the economy. See, that gets it back on the government intervention instead of, uh, instead of private intervention. You also have the Smoot-Hawley tariff. We enacted the highest tariff in United States history. Mm-hmm. And that high tariff made it hard for the United States to trade products with other countries because we had such high tariff rates that we couldn't import anything, and therefore other countries refused to buy from us because we wouldn't buy from them. Uh, For example, the auto industry, we sold in the United States 5 million automobiles in 1929. Our sales were down to 1.6 million in 1932, and a large chunk of that was the foreign market because uh, Europeans were refusing to buy our cars because we would not buy the products they were selling because we enacted the highest tariff in United States history. Mm. I think you would find uh, agreement, though, across the spectrum with respect to Smoot-Hawley, uh, the, the tariffs, that that was a bad, a bad yeah. move. So that, that's one of the areas that we can all agree on. for that. 
that wasn't FDR. That was Hoover that that made that disaster. Oh, that's true. That that is true. That happened. Um, I, I, when we come back the next hour, um, I want to talk to you about some of the uh, some of the financial manipulation that was that went on during Roosevelt because I believe we still have a lot of financial manipulation in these markets right now. And I want to see there's lots of parallels that I see between the 1930s and what's going on now. And I want to get your opinion on a lot of those. I, I think maybe we touched on a couple of them. If we have time, I'd like you to talk about farm subsidies, minimum wages, welfare spending, lots and many many things to talk about. Uh, with respect to getting us out, maybe we just address this before we go to break, but with respect to what got us out of the Depression, a lot of people think it was World War II uh, well, and not Roosevelt. What are your thoughts on that? Well, in a way, it's, uh, I don't think it's World War II. The, in a way, it's a sad situation if it is, that could, because that means to get out of a Great Depression, we need to send boys overseas, kill them. And by yeah. the way, if they're killed, they're no longer unemployed. Uh, drop bombs on other people, kill them, and then we're out of the Great Depression. If that were a way to get out of a Great Depression, why then any time you got in economic trouble, just find someone who you don't like, go over and bomb them, kill them. Let them, of course, kill a bunch of your people so that you, you those those people will no longer be unemployed, and you'll have a recovery. That isn't the way it works. We went hugely in debt in World War II. The issue is what is going to happen after World War II. We ha- we were in a depression before. Will the depression return after World War II? Mm-hmm. Roosevelt died, and when he died, a lot of the manipulation of Congress began to go into the hands of Truman, who was not nearly the manipulator that Roosevelt was. Mm-hmm. And what we find is the Republicans got control of Congress. They cut tax rates, and that cutting of tax rates and the encouragement of entrepreneurs and economic development began to move us out of the out of the great depression and we can talk really about 1945 and 1946 as being the years of real recovery from the great depression okay maybe we uh, can revisit that we're going to be going to commercial break just in a minute or two so it was cutting taxes that did it um, correct but we had the federal reserve was was created in 1913 it was it was set up uh, at least the american people were told that it was established to iron out the business cycle. And then we have the largest economic decline, perhaps uh, since, the, uh, since the Civil War, perhaps. If you, you tell me, you're the historian. But, sure. But the Federal Reserve didn't work too well, did it? No, it didn't. I, let me say one thing, Jay, on this whole business of World War II. I had a, an article that I did with my wife, Anita, in the Wall Street Journal on April 12th uh, this year that mm-hmm. was on the World War II uh, tax cuts after okay. World War II. And that's available on my blog at bertfolsom.com. Uh, I simply cite that to say this is not some wild speculation. It's something I've been working on with other people. And the idea that tax cuts after World War II was the key to getting us out of the Great Depression, I think, is going to withstand careful scrutiny, and we're going to see that that was the key to economic recovery. Fantastic. Okay, we'll, we'll come back on that and talk about that and much more with Professor Bert Folsom. Uh, we're going to go to break right now. Don't go away. A lot more to talk about. We're going to hit on gold and silver, uh, a couple of our t- favorite topics on this show. So don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with Dr. Folsom.
Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Mill Rock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Mill Rock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its Gold Fields Project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green-tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by the business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network welcome to the human race some kind of love and ride i'll be sliding down i'll be gliding down try not to try to you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, and I want to thank our sponsors for making the show financially viable. They are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Solidon Gold Corp, Dasha Capital, Richfield Ventures, Athabasca Uranium, who we'll be talking to in a few minutes, uh, the CEO of that company, Brigus Gold, Everton Resources, Millrock Resources, and Golden Hope Mines. Uh, we're here with Dr. Bert Folsom, um, professor of history uh, at Hillsdale College in Michigan. And uh, before we went on break, we were talking about the recovery. Uh, Dr. Folsom, uh, you were suggesting that tax cuts is really what got us out. And uh, specifically, 1945, 1946, uh, end of World War II. Could you talk about that a little bit more, perhaps? Right. We, uh, President Roosevelt was, was so hostile toward rich people. And keep in mind, Roosevelt had, had been very unsuccessful in all of his business ventures. He simply didn't have the, the mind of a business person. He was a good politician mm-hmm. from, from a standpoint of getting votes and being charismatic. But as you know, in the business world, there are many other things that are important. You're, you're dealing with capital investments and looking at markets and this kind of thing. He was always a failure. He didn't understand businessmen and denounced them. During the war, at one point, Roosevelt issued an executive order. I talk about this in the book a little bit, uh, for a 100% tax on all income over $25,000. My goodness. Well, 25000 to put it in perspective, though, was worth a lot more than it is today. What would it be worth today? Yeah, it would be 250000 but yeah. but but still, well, that, 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 and it's progressive up to 100%. Yeah. At one point, he was even toying when we developed withholding, because withholding came in in World War II with a tax of over 100%, uh. Uh, a tax of more than 100%. So that was being that was being discussed and debated too. But it ended up at the end of the war Roosevelt had to settle for 94% is the top rate on all income over $200,000. Mm. So people who earned over 200,000 got to keep 6%. Well, that isn't much to invest and Congress immediately uh, after Roosevelt's death and after the war cut that down to at least 85. Then they cut it into the 70s the next year. Then, as I mentioned earlier, the corporate tax was 90%, and they cut that to 37%. Hmm. We also had a capital stock tax. That was eliminated. And so we we had, uh, and then, of course, the the war spending was reduced substantially, and we began began to come close to balanced budgets. And we threw the Democrats out, and with all of that, we had a lot of businessmen believing that we were going, that we were on to recovery. That there was a new era. We weren't going to have the blame business for all the problems, high taxes, and massive government spending. And with that, we had the expansion. Of course, you know the companies. I mean, you've got the television emerges, uh, Xerox. Uh, a lot of corporations expanded. You ultimately get. Uh, Holiday Inn, McDonald's comes in in the 50s, you know, all of this in the decade after after World War II, we began to get expansion into a lot of new areas. And so the recovery of from the Great Depression is complete once we tell investors and business and entrepreneurs that you can keep most of what you make. Mm. Interesting. So you're, uh, you're suggesting, if I'm hearing you properly, that all of those, maybe most of those, if not all of those things that you just named, those technology breakthroughs and those, yeah. the commercial breakthroughs would not have occurred if we still had that 94% tax rate at the upper level or whatever. I think so. Now, of course, you can, some of this gets hard to prove, but I'm just saying we were not getting the breakthroughs when we had the 94% yeah. rate. Uh, 
We only got the breakthroughs when we began to tell people you had to keep most of what you mm-hmm. what you make. We saw this, by the way, Jay, in the 1920s, because we had a tax rate cuts in the 1920s, and we had massive expansion in the 20s. And you found, for example, Willis Carrier invested in air conditioning and built the first air conditioning, uh, uh, the first large-scale air conditioning units for movie theaters in the 1920s. And uh, right when the tax rate was cut from a top rate of 73% to 25%, and once that cut, tax rate was cut, then all of a sudden the air conditioning comes in. So we know that that cutting taxes can really spur investment, and that is we had it happen in the 20s, we had it happen in the 1940s, and then we would have it happen again in the 1980s. Well, Roosevelt couldn't have understood that. He didn't understand business, obviously, and so um, or he was just a, a ruthless politician, it sounds like. Yeah, he thought airplanes were a passing fad, you know, this kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, he didn't have a vision of the future, I guess, and, and whatever it was, uh, we uh, we can see that taxes, tax cuts certainly do uh, redistribute wealth back to the to the sources of of its creation. I would argue instead of uh, redistributing it to the consumers uh, or to the parasites, you might say. Right. Um, now, the, the, here's the thing: I've got a problem with though Republicans, like let's say Lawrence Kudlow, for example, always cutting taxes. I don't have a problem with that. But then he has no problem either in having the Federal Reserve create endless amounts of money to fund uh, the government's uh, deficit spending, it seems. Well, that's where you call uh, Of course, the monetarists believe a little bit of that's okay. The Austrians yeah. do not. Mm-hmm. But uh, working through those schools of thought, uh, there is a problem. I agree with you, Jay. If you have the Federal Reserve issuing massive quantities of money, mm-hmm. it is very likely to lead to inflation. It, it almost always does. Mm-hmm. And that's no way to run an economy. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're uh, we're certainly doing it now in spades. But we did it through Republican administrations as yes. well. Uh, yes, we did. The, but they uh, deserve especially Bush too was a disappointment in terms of spending. I would say it, it, it is. And this is going to be the test. It looks as though the Republicans are going to do well in the November elections. And a lot of people are saying, have they learned their lesson? Are they going to be a serious alternate political party mm-hmm. to the to the spending party? And mm-hmm. if they're if they're going to be a good alternative, then we're going to see good economic results. See, the the two presidents who were willing to take supply side economics seriously were Coolidge and Reagan, mm-hmm. and both of those two won astounding reelections. The mm-hmm. greatest, really, of just about any presidents in in United States history. Wils or Coolidge beat the Democrats so soundly after his tax cuts in 1924. He beat the Democrats so soundly that the Democrat only got about thirty, got under thirty percent of the vote. Yeah, I might mention to our listeners that you also uh, uh, spend a lot of time, or have have done a lot of work, at least with uh, with presidential politics in the United yes. States. Is that right? That's right. I, at Hillsdale College, I teach history of the American presidency. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that would be interesting. Have you written anything along those lines? Uh, well, of course, I've got. I have my Roosevelt book. I have a chapter on the 1920s, Coolidge and Mellon, in my book, The Myth of the Robber Barons. Okay. And Andrew Mellon was was a good example of a very successful businessman who went into politics and did well in politics. He he became Secretary of Treasury under Coolidge, under mm-hmm. Harding and Coolidge both. And in that office, he said uh, he he was the third wealthiest man in the country, and he said. I know that investments are being stymied because 
I'm doing it myself. In other words, we're going into tax exempt, and with the high tax rates, we're going into tax exempt bonds. Uh, Mellon said, I, I happen to have what I think is probably the best art collection in the United States because I can buy and sell art and not be subject to capital gains. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so he said, uh, I know that if we can cut tax rates, we can bring my money back into the economy and we can bring uh, that of my friends and other people I know. And so we had the, the tax cuts of the 1920s. It's the first time we tried that in U.S. history. And the end result was that we had an expansion, an economic expansion. And, and then another thing that Mellon predicted, and I get into this in, in, in my book, The Myth of the Robber Barons, we also had increased revenue coming into the government. That's what the shock was to people. The revenue increased because 73%, which was the old tax rate, 73% of nothing or almost nothing is nothing. And as Mellon pointed out, 25%, which was the new tax rate, 25% of something is something. Right. And, so, and so the investments came in, and we got we taxed the new investments at 25%. And the old investments were, were not being taxed because it was, the money was going out of the country into tax-exempt bonds, into collectibles, and all those things. So we just simply were not generating federal revenue. We had budget surpluses every year of the 1920s, every it year. certainly was an example of supply-side economics then going all the way back then. It was, and I think that's instructive because, let's face it, Jay, a lot of what we want to know, we're, we're in difficult times right now, is what works and what doesn't work. Right. Historians are in a position to help with that because we can look at what worked in the 1920s, what didn't work in the 1930s, what worked in the 40s, and then what worked again in the 80s, and what's not working now, and we see a pattern. And the pattern is the freer you make people to spend their own money, the more prosperous your economy is. The more you centrally direct the economy and have politicians spend other people's money, the worse shape the economy is in. I'd like to focus uh, some of the content, uh, on some of the content on Chapter 8 of your book because this show has an awful lot to do with investing. It has a lot to do with gold in particular because gold, I believe, is where people need to be given the, uh, given the destruction in the economy, a little bit like... Uh, uh, like Mellon investing in art, I think people have to invest in gold because the government's making it impossible. The Mellon investment is out there. The markets are so screwed up. It's a, it's very difficult to put your money into things that will that will do well. Gold mining right. will do well. It did well during the other great uh, periods of of, of uh, credit contraction, as uh, Bob Hoy has pointed out in this show. And actually, gold uh, ten, gold mining tends to do extremely well. We've seen the real price of gold rise dramatically. We're seeing a lot of capital going to gold mining, and it helps to liquefy, reliquify the system with honest money. People uh, give up on the fiat currency, on the on the on the fake stuff that they make us use by law. So I'd like to focus a little bit. You talk in on chapter in chapter eight of your book. Uh, you talk about. Uh, the financial markets manipulation, the manipulation of gold and silver and tariffs and stocks and bonds. Let's start with gold and silver. What was going on back in the Roosevelt days uh, with respect to the gold and silver markets? Well, you're right, Jay, in saying that gold and silver are uh, are certainly there in times of, in, of inflation, and we've seen a big run in gold uh, already. In the 19... 19- 30s, Roosevelt wanted to inflate the currency. He wanted massive federal spending, but he knew he couldn't get all the tax revenue he needed for the massive federal spending. And so he wanted to inflate the currency and do it that way, too. The problem is that the United States was on the gold standard. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we were buying and selling gold 
at $20.67 an ounce. I believe it was the price. Yeah, $20. that's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he, 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 if you see what I mean, in other words, if you pour a bunch of dollars with the Federal Reserve, if you just print up a lot of money and pour it in there, then people, as, as we get inflation, people will use gold as a hedge because that right. has... Uh, you, you, you can you always have the twenty dollars in, in the sixty seven cents as a as a as a standard price, and so the gold standards was preventing President Roosevelt from inflating, and so he had to get us off the gold standard, and he did that, and then he made it illegal to own gold because see gold would always be a hedge against inflation. And so it was illegal for, uh, for, as you know, for many decades to own gold. And uh, Roosevelt raised the price of gold to $35 an ounce after he bought everybody's gold at a price less than that. <laughs> now, that's kind of duplicitous by the federal government to buy your gold at, so, at a price between $20 and 67 cents, somewhere between that and 35 and then declare that it's worth 35 Then Roosevelt has, has the gold, and then he can inflate the currency. But uh, he, his very actions in doing that, though, show us the importance of precious metals in times of uncertainty. Right. And that supports your argument. Silver was an odd case, Jay, because silver was more plentiful than gold, of course. Yeah. And Roosevelt decided what he'd do with silver. He didn't do silver the same way he did gold. With silver, the the market price for silver in the thir- in the early 30s was about 40 cents an ounce maybe a little higher, but, you know, a few cents here and there, but 40, maybe 45 cents an ounce. What Roosevelt did was he he signed the Silver Purchase Act, which said that the federal government would pay $64.50 for every ounce of silver. So, in other words, it's a subsidy for silver miners. They would pay how much was that again? $64.50 an ounce. For every ounce? Uh, or Excuse me. Did I say sixty-four dollars? Sixty-four and a half cents an ounce. Sixty-four and a half cents. Yeah. I am sorry. So, but still a subsidy. It goes from forty to forty-five cents an ounce to sixty-four and a half cents an ounce. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a it props it up maybe well what a third or something. Yeah, exactly. Big big subsidy. Big subsidy to sixty-four and a half cents an ounce. Mm -hmm. Now uh, at that point. The silver miners, of course, respond by mining extra amounts of silver. In other words, they dig into mines that would not have been profitable before that. And and then also there's smuggling of silver over the border from Mexico where people will buy the product in Mexico at at 40 cents or or 50 cents an ounce and then sell it to the U.S. government for 64.5 cents an ounce. So you have that going on. So all of a sudden we have uh, have this huge amount of silver. Roosevelt, because he wants to win the votes of the silver states, will not do anything to stop this so that by the time we get to the World War, World War II, we have 42,000 tons of silver stored in various places in the United States Mm. that we have simply bought that we're not doing anything with. Now, I ask you this, Jay, if you're trying to get out of a Great Depression, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, you know, capital is important in this, siphoning capital and taking tax dollars out of circulation to buy extra silver at artificially high prices, 42,000 tons of it, putting it in various locations around the country, that's only going to perpetuate a Great Mm -hmm. Depression. It does nothing to put money into the economy. Mm -hmm. 
Or, and that's part of the tragedy of, of Roosevelt's manipulation of gold and silver. All right, that's, uh, that's part of the story of, of gold and silver. What about, uh, what about stocks and bonds? What did they do there? Well, they're, they're, with stocks and bonds, to my knowledge, we don't have any kind of formal manipulation. In other words, the buying and selling of uh, particular commodities or in the commodities market or that sort of thing. The, stock, the Dow Jones average uh, sank uh, from 1929 to 33. It's It lost 85% of its value. Mm-hmm. And the and it did fluctuate and rise a little bit in the 1930s. It had its big rise though after World War II. After World War II is when we began to get the stock market really. We began to get the recovery underway. And that was with those tax cuts that you talked about. That's with the tax cuts exactly. We get a huge rise in 1945 and 46 in the stock market, and uh, and that rise reflects the increased confidence that business has in the markets. Well, so taxes are the way to, I mean, tax cuts are the way to go now. Would you say that? I think that that's, that's the first step, is that you, you have to give people an incentive to invest and expand. And by tax cuts, tax rate cuts, I mean in income tax, I mean estate tax. Uh, we're talking about capital gains tax. We're talking about dividend taxes. All of these, when you, when you put high taxes on those, uh, on, on those sources of income, then you really put a damper on the economy. And we already have a corporate tax rate that's the second highest in the world next to Japan, really. And so that doesn't encourage capital to stay in the United States. We, um, we certainly do have a high, high corporate tax rate. I know my friends in Canada, and we think of Canada as being such a socialistic place. Of course, they're, they're not... Uh, uh, they don't have a military that's uh, that's in 160 countries or whatever. Right, right. Um, what, what, but what do you say? You know, the argument, of course, against cutting taxes is now, oh my goodness, uh, you know, we're, we're running such huge deficits. Um, how do you answer that, Jay? That's a good question, and we have an answer to that because, again, we have to look at history. What happened when we cut ta- the two times in American history that we have dramatically slashed the income tax are in the 20s and in the 80s. And what happened in both of those occasions is that the revenue actually increased more sharply than, uh, than it had been doing before. In other words, tax rate, you can't afford not to cut taxes. Mm-hmm. It actually generates more revenue. Now, of course, if you cut it down to 1%, that's where we get into the Laffer curve. If you cut it to 1%, it won't. But I'm saying that if, you cut, if we were to cut the, the tax rates, and dividend tax rates and capital gains tax rates and get them around 10 or 15%, we would have an explosion of economic development. And I predict that we would have revenue that would, be, that would rival what we had today. We would not have a decline in revenue, but we would have an enormous business expansion. We would attract capital from all over the world, as we did in the 20s and in the 80s, and we would have a big growth economy. Well, the problem that I see is that when you start to have that kind of prosperity, then what you have is government wanting a bigger and bigger share <laughs> of it. Uh, they don't, you know, they don't, they don't want to just let uh, the private sector go. They want to, they want to build their own empires. Uh, we had um, Professor Lawrence Kotlikoff with us last week, and the week before, he's uh, Boston University economics professor. Sure. Uh, 
And, you know, he was talking about how, uh, you know, he's come right out and said, look, uh, both the Clinton administrations and the Bush administrations outright lied to the American people in terms of what the government debt is really. It's not the $9 trillion the government's claiming, but in fact, if you do a present value to the promises in Social Security and Medicare, etc., that we're looking at $202 trillion. Now we're looking at a possibility of a currency that could be obliterated. I mean, and it, it, we're in big trouble, are we not? We are, and I agree that both the Clinton and Bush administrations did, made made errors in spending. Both of them, however, it's important to point out under both administrations, we did have a few good things happen, and I want to separate that so that mm-hmm. we can we can give credit where credit is due. In the Clinton administration, we did have serious welfare reform that that Clinton and the Republican Congress pulled together that reduced the welfare rolls by about one-third. Mm-hmm. Uh, we knocked about one-third of the people off. When that happened, that went a long way toward balanced budgets at the end of the decade, and that was, that was a good thing. Clinton also cut the capital gains tax. We also saw that under Bush, and we saw tax rate cuts from 39% to 35% under President Bush. So we did have some good things economically, some good economic policy under both Clinton and Bush. The problem, as you said, Jay, earlier, is that both of them spent too much. Yeah, There was just flat out too much federal spending, too much pork barrel spending, too many earmarks. And this is going to be the challenge if the Republicans regain power. Are they going to behave like a serious opposition party and reduce earmarks and reduce federal spending and have the courage to do it? Keeping in mind that when when this was done under Coolidge, he won dramatic re-election. You can win elections and do that, but uh, you have to have the nerve and you have to have the boldness, you have to have the courage and the sense of honor to do it. Right. Well, it seems to me, uh, uh, Dr. Folsom, that we are, you know, certainly an empire now. And we have a military, and we have people we've had on this show uh, that you may or may not be familiar with. Uh, Ed Griffin, who wrote a book called The Creature from Jekyll Island that talks about the origin of the Federal Reserve, who the powers behind the throne really are. Who's really calling the shots? Is it Obama? Is it Bush? Or are there bigger people? When these guys get to office, who's really... Who's really calling the shots? We've had John Perkins, uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, on this show. And Perkins talks about how you've got this corporatocracy around the world, that the large corporate interests are really are really calling the shots. We've had BHP, who is responsible, uh, in essence, uh, uh, for getting uh, the popular elected uh, uh, office uh, uh, president of Iran taken out by our CIA and so forth. So the United States is a large... Uh, empire right now. It wasn't what our founding fathers envisioned by any stretch of the imagination. We had this enormous military. We spend more money than all the rest of the countries around the world on military. Uh, Is there any way that you see politically that this can be changed, that we can go back to some sort of, you know, more normal? Do we have to be this, do we have to be this, uh, this large uh, empire to keep things going? Or can we sort of roll this back as a Ron Paul would do, for example, if he were president? Well, I like the, uh, the way your mind is working there because I believe that a lot of problems has, have been created by that, that very problem of empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have because it's involved us in huge military spending. And this started, in, well, actually it starts at the Spanish-American War. 
And, uh-huh. and, you know, again, history is helpful for helping us understand this. World War II, it gets a big jump because we become a real-world policeman after World War II, and that's where the Iran problem happened and the Guatemala manipulation that we had in the 50s that, that backfired so much. Mm-hmm. All of that happened with the CIA. All of that is after World War II. But the Spanish-American War is where it begins. So often problems begin slowly. Right. Uh, we acquired the Philippines. Well, that's nice, except that we had uh, many thousands of Americans. We get the Philippines, we decide not to make them free, but we're going to come in and and pacify them. They want their freedom, and we killed over 220,000 Filipinos in in a matter of three years, and we had uh, uh, several thousand of our own troops killed. We're, and we spent a large amount of money over there, and and this is this problem, this over this desire for overseas uh, empire, and it didn't really work well when we started it, and it hasn't worked very well since World War II. It's complicated, though, isn't it, Jay? It's hard yeah. to to unravel some of that. I think it's going to have to be done a piece at a time. If we can if we can improve our own economy mm-hmm. with increasingly limiting government, and we see that it works, and we get some some positive results from that. I think there will be more incentives to cut budgets at the military end as well. I hope you're right about that. Uh, I'm not sure that all the large corporatocracy would, would agree with you and think that's in the best interest of the country, or at least their, their best interest. But that's, those are topics that we'll be talking to uh, various people in the future about, and we'd love to have you come back sometime. We are basically out of time, but before we leave, uh, just one quick question. Uh, uh, one of the big issues on this show on an ongoing basis is whether uh, this is going to work itself out, uh, if, we have to, if it has to end badly. Is it going to end through some sort of a hyperinflation or a deflationary depression? Uh, or maybe you're going to say it doesn't have to happen badly. That would be a, a positive note. I think I'm actually optimistic. I really am. And part of it is from studying the New Deal. Remember, I'm studying a president where... where it, he passed laws where in the 1930s, if you gave customers a discount, you know, I have that on the uh, National Recovery Act chapter, uh-huh. you go to jail for giving customers a discount. You're paying people not to, uh, not to produce, of course, in farming. You're, you're, you're having a president, get, uh, by Roosevelt, get reelected overwhelmingly by just simply buying votes. We have all of that going on and a tax rate that's, that goes from 79% in the 30s up to close to 100% at 94%. Well, we recovered from all of that. In other yeah. words, I'm optimistic because we got out of a very bad economic situation and we had something much better. Even now, the tax rate's only 35% at the income tax top level. Well, that's a lot better than the, the 94% that we had when Roosevelt was alive. And so if we can recover from that, I believe that our economy can recover from what we have today as well. We just simply have to have good economic policy. And I see a lot of people out there that are pointing us in the right direction uh, if they if they will uh, be consistent on it. You know, the Tea Party movement, for example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If these people will, will push politicians and we will have some politicians who will really practice uh, free market economics and reduce the role of the federal government, we will have improvements. Well, that's a, that's a very hopeful note. I must say that uh, this we end this discussion on one of the more optimistic uh, thoughts, uh, optimistic notes that we've had, because so many of the people I have are sort of gloom and doom views of the world, and myself included, I tend to be a deflationist. But, you know, what you say makes sense, and going back and looking at history and realizing that things were really pretty dark at other times in our history, 
uh, you can gain some hope in, in that uh, by doing that. Can I ask you just to give our listeners your uh, your blog site, perhaps, so sure. people can follow your work from here on? I'd be glad to, Jay. Uh, I write regularly on BertFolsom.com, B-U-R-T, and then F-O-L-S-O-M.com. Uh, and we talk about these issues. We tie the past to the present, mainly about economic problems, sometimes problems on precious metals, but mainly connecting history uh, with what we have today and trying to search for good solutions. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Folsom, for being with us. It really is an, it was an interesting discussion. Uh, perhaps we can have you on again sometime if you're willing to come back. Thank you so much. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be with Gil Schneider. He's the president and CEO and director of Athabasca Uranium. Don't go away. We'll be right back. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Richfield Ventures Corp. is a publicly traded junior mining company on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol RVC. Led by an experienced and dedicated team, Richfield is systematically drilling 25,000 meters of core in 2010 on its Blackwater Gold Project in central British Columbia, where the primary goal is to discover a world-class bulk tonnage gold deposit. With $5 million in treasury and 40 million shares fully diluted, Richfield and its shareholders are poised for a major discovery. Go to richfieldventures.ca. CA for further information. Solidan Gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Showindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property and with this expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year highlighting a very positive and economical project and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.solidan.com to learn more. 
Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by voice america business network the bottom line in business welcome to the human race some kind of love and ride i'll be sliding down i'll be gliding down try not to try to You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am pleased to have with me Gil Schneider. He's the president and CEO and director of Athabasca Uranium. Uh, that is uh, a company that we're grateful to for their sponsorship. As I noted, they... Uh, our sponsors make this show uh, economically viable. We just heard from uh, Dr. Folsom, I think, some very interesting things. Every week we have some really interesting people on in our show, and that is because of people like uh, Gil Schneider and his company who make this show uh, economically viable. But in addition to that, as I said earlier, our our sponsors have some very interesting things to say in their own right about their the company about their companies about their programs about how they're planning to build wealth for their shareholders so i'm very pleased to have with me uh gil schneider uh again athabasca uranium they're a new company really about 15 million shares outstanding uh selling last i looked at only about 22 cents so it's a very very small startup uh company uh, so let's go to Gil. Gil, welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you, Jay, for inviting us and Athabasca Uranium to your show. Well, it's, it's really a pleasure to have you. Uh, uranium, you know, most of our companies are gold mining, gold exploration companies. We do have a, a metals uh, trading company uh, among our sponsors that come on and have talked. But uh, we've had another uranium company in the past. But, I'm, uh, but let, what, are your, what are your thoughts about uranium right now? I mean, the, the price isn't very high right now, but... Still, when you look at the supply and demand aspects for uranium, you have to be pretty bullish longer term, right? Absolutely. Uh, right now, it's true, uranium is a little bit quiet, uh, but that's the time to position yourself uh, into an area, uh, into a commodity that you know is going to have absolute uh, high demand in the future. Every sign uh, is out there that there's going to be extreme demand, actually, uh, with the number of nuclear reactors uh, that are being constructed throughout the world now. Um, okay, so Athabasca Uranium is really quite new. You started trading only in July of this year. Give us a little bit of a background on the history of your company. Well, the, the company uh, started out as a capital pool corporation, which uh, you might be familiar with. It's a program that the TSX Venture uh, has put into place 
to allow companies that would normally have a, a difficult time uh, going public uh, to have a vehicle to uh, become public much more easy and to access the public uh, markets funds. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you and you went out, um, I guess, maybe with an initial offering of 15 million shares because I see it's a nice round even number, which you don't see very often. 15 million shares exactly, outstanding now. Well, the the company started out, and we weren't involved at the at the formation of this company. Uh, it started out as uh, as I mentioned as a, a CPC they call them, and it only had uh, four million shares out. So uh, there were two million IPO shares and uh, two million shares out in the public. Okay, so you've raised some capital now. Uh, how much money do you have in the till at the moment? Well, in, in total, uh, the company raised about nine hundred thousand dollars only because the intent was to. Uh, keep the dilution to a minimum, Sure. and uh, we've begun to use some of that money for exploration already, uh, so we are down to about uh, $600,000. Uh, the intent for the company, though, is to um, commence a, um, a private placement uh, consisting of a uh, flow-through shares uh, along potentially with a warrant, uh, and we would do that in September really quite quickly. Okay, and this would be for accredited investors probably, or, or flow-through would be uh, uh, in your province there. Now tell us where you're, you're, you have a flagship property. Well, yes, we do. Uh, the, the area that we have selected is um, the Athabasca Basin. Uh, the location is um, 700 kilometers north of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Uh, it's um, difficult to draw a picture on a radio show, uh, but it's um, quite far north. And uh, what's uh, impressive about the Athabasca Basin is, is that the, the uranium ore bodies that have been discovered there are thousands of times higher concentration levels than anywhere else in the world. And if you take, for example, the largest uranium mine in the world is in Australia. It's the Ranger Mine, and its concentration levels are 1%. Uh, the second largest in the world is the, the Rossing Mine in South Africa, its concentration levels are about one-half of one percent. Uh, the, the uranium that has been discovered in the Athabasca Basin, uh, and I'll use one in particular, the MacArthur River, which is owned by Cameco, uh, the world's largest producer of uranium, uh, the concentration levels there are 23 percent. Mm-hmm. So you can see the difference uh, in the, the concentration levels. So that is the area that we have chosen to uh, be located in. And uh, what has driven this is uh, that the company Kinetics uh, that I took public in 2006 uh, possesses a technology uh, that's been adapted for mining. It was originally invented for oil and gas by Ion Geophysical out of Houston, Texas, and Kinetics was the beta test partner in the field for uh, four years while Ion was developing this technology and uh, then was first to market with it. Uh, but has learned how to use it for mining. So currently, Kinetics is the only company in the world that has has adapted this particular technology uh, to mining. Mm-hmm. And uh, what this technology is, very briefly, it is uh, called full wave or, or multi-component, uh, meaning that if you compare this to regular seismic, conventional seismic that's been around forever, uh, Basically, conventional seismic can see a very narrow vertical wave called the P wave, and uh, oil and gas companies have been uh, relatively successful in discovering oil and gas uh, through the centuries and the decades. Uh, the, what, how this is different, it sees that vertical wave on double the bandwidth on the frequency spectrum, and it also sees two kinds of 
horizontal waves called shear waves. Uh, the sensor itself also uh, orientates itself to be perfectly vertical to the Earth's axis. And what this leads to is uh, a very high fidelity image that cannot be achieved by conventional seismic. So with this, with a great degree of certainty, you can begin to determine uh, down in the ground, you can begin to determine permeability, porosity, density, fluid characterization. You can see fractures in the earth. You can see the earth's geometry. Uh, in the Athabasca Basin, you see a structure called unconformities, which generally house uranium, uh, not always. Uh, but this is the only technology, as far as I know, uh, in the world that can actually uh, image the unconformity structure. Okay, and you've had some success uh, with that technology in the past? Well, well where it started was um, actually with Calico in the early 2000s uh, on the MacArthur River Mine, which is arguably the richest mine in the world, worth of approximately about $30 billion, I think. Uh, and uh, at that time, uh, Calico was trying to understand the geology uh, below the ground so that they could get a, a fairly definite idea of what the reserves were in that mine. Uh, to that end, they drilled 450 core holes, uh, didn't feel comfortably that they understood the geology, and uh, hired uh, the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon, uh, in particular uh, a gentleman, a professor named uh, Dr. Zoltan Heino, who is uh, now Professor Emertius uh, at the university. Uh, he went up with his uh, team and along with the Saskatchewan Research Council and uh, funded by the Geological Survey of Canada. So it was a, a pretty impressive credential team uh, along with Kinetics. So Kinetics did the imaging on the area. Uh, the data was analyzed and uh, interpreted at the University of Saskatchewan. And uh, at that time, they noticed a, a particular anomaly and uh, urged chemical to drill this, they did, and uh, they discovered an, a new ore body called MacArthur River P2. Uh, and what's significant is that it's worth about a billion dollars mm -hmm. in the ground. Uh, Cameco has since used that uh, technology again over at Millennium, uh, where uh, they have a discovery there that's 600 meters deep, about twice as deep as the MacArthur River one, and they're using the data there to determine where to put the mine shaft. Uh, because flooding is a big issue in that area. Right. Uh, so so that, those are two examples, uh, but the, the real striking example is that the Hather uh, Exploration Company, they, they hired uh, Kinetics to do their imaging in the late 2007, and there again the, the data was analyzed at the University of Saskatchewan, and uh, Dr. Zoltan Heinol and his team were uh, the early uh, exploration team uh, that helped Hather um, go through their exploration activity. Uh, what occurred there uh, was that in about February of 2008, uh, Hather made the announcement that they were going to drill 24 drill targets uh, on their property. And it, it may be worthy of note that this particular property was once owned by Chemical, and they wrote it off as, uh, as not having uh, any uh, value. Uh, but here, Hather has uh, made this discovery that uh, some analysts believe is worth $2 billion in the ground. Uh, and so well, they made that, this that is very interesting. That. I, I think that I'm, I wonder if you could tell our listeners uh, if they want to follow up with some of this 
information where they can uh, where they can you know follow this technology and perhaps when they have a little more time go look for, is there a website where people can go to 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 uh, get familiar with kinetics uh, with the kinetics technology yes yes there is it's uh, it's spelled unusually though it's spelled k i n e t e x dot okay. c a so dot c a okay k i n e t e x dot c a explorations actually uh huh okay and um, okay so that's the technology that you will be using to search for a deposit uh, uh, with Athabasca uranium that's correct and your website uh, Gil. Excuse me? The website for uh, for Athabasca Uranium is what? Yes, I've got it right here in front of me. It is uh, AthabascaUranium.com. AthabascaUranium.com. Well, thank you. I, I guess, uh, really, are you starting a drill program anytime soon? Well, what the, what the intention is, Jay, is um, from the flow-through financing, the first step in the exploration would be to do the seismic imaging, similar to what Hather did. And we'll be using uh, the same team. We'll be using Dr. Zoltan Heinol and the team from the University of Saskatchewan to be the exploration team. And uh, the data will be analyzed at the University of Saskatchewan. Uh, from that, we expect uh, a drill program. And if we, uh, the weather is, works in our favor, we'll be able to do uh, some of the drilling before spring breakup. All right. Well, I'm sorry we don't have more time. We'll have to have you back again sometime to talk some more about this. Folks can follow the uh, the progress of Athabasca uranium and check out the technology that Gil was talking about. Gil, uh, sorry, we're going to have to go to, to our next segment now. We're just simply out of time. We can't really turn the clock back. But thanks for coming on our show. We'll look to talk to you again sometime soon. Well, thank you very much, Jay, for inviting us. We look forward to seeing you at the next resource show. Very good. Thank you so much. Uh, folks, don't go away. I'm going to come right back with Roger Wiegand for some thoughts on these hectic markets that we're seeing today. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Mill Rock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Mill Rock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Mill Rock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and right. You're listening.
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back uh, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm here with Roger Wiegand, and you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to shut my mouth for a few minutes, and the last four and a half minutes or so of time we have today, I'm turning it over to Roger. Roger, your comments on the markets. I know you were talking about the S&P 500 and some other things. Just tell people what you think is going on in the markets right now. Well, there's so much weakness, Jay, in the stock market generally across the board, not only in the U.S., but Asia and Europe, that the people that are trading these things and the funds and the fund managers and the plunge protection team, they're struggling to try to keep uh, the stock markets levitated. And what happens is you get a lot of uh, sideways trading and choppy trading. Uh, It was most pronounced today with the S&P September futures contract. They traded almost 3 million mini-contracts. Those are one-fifth the size of the big one. And near the end of the day and after the, the, the bell closed, uh, the e minis continued to trade, and we were seeing absolute wild trading. They were trading between four, five, six, eight hundred contracts so fast uh, we could barely see them going by. So what this says to me, people are positioning, number one, before the holiday. Number two, uh, they're trying to sell into strength and get out of the way. Uh, we saw an S&P chart today, which was very indicative of all these problems. So from our perspective, the sell is on. They can prop it. They can give uh, more dead cat bounces. But without any question, uh, this thing is going to sell a lot further. On another subject, gold today, in a reaction to some of these other matters, uh, took off in a brand-new wave one. Uh, there was no selling relief correction in August, as we suspected, which is normal. Rather, instead... Uh, the price came out of a continuation triangle. It opened at 1238 and is, it went all the way up to 1250 resistance. Uh, that support and resistance, it was up $10 in after, in after <coughs> excuse me, after hours trading. Silver likewise went up even more. Uh, silver December futures, $19.39. Uh, again, big volume and a wide trading range. So we mentioned that the volatility in the trading ranges were going to go uh, wider and faster, and this is indeed happening. And we're also seeing some top analysts giving some higher predictions on numbers. We stick to ours as a high gold price for the fall last quarter, 1325 to 1375. But today we saw prices that exceed that by some very reputable people talking about 14 and a half, 15 and a half. So there's no question the push is on. Uh, there was uh, the Canadian dollar went a little weaker, but some of the Canadian stocks today and the big gold miners uh, did exceedingly well. Newmont's had a lot of problems, but they're going to report over a billion dollars in net profit. Meanwhile, the U.S. dollar is static, going sideways. Uh, the grains are, are flat to down. The bonds are going higher in a, in a rally, in a flight to safety, we th- which we think is ridiculous, but that's where it's going. Also, another key number we saw today Crude oil sold down over 4%. That is a very large move for that market. 
gold, or excuse me, uh, crude oil opened at $74, and the October futures last price, 71 and a half. Mm. We think 70 can hold, but uh, these markets are really starting to take off. Well, that's really interesting. Roger would say that smacks of deflation, uh, that kind of, a, of an oil market decline, uh, I suppose. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. This always seems to be the case, Roger. We bring you on at the end, and there's not much time left, so we're going to have to find a way to either get you on earlier in the show or else to, uh, uh, to, to squeeze things in the middle more than at the end, I guess. But that's uh, really, folks, that's all the time we've got. We've got 30 seconds left here. It's just enough time to remind you again that you can take advantage of our one-time-only trial offers for Roger's newsletter, Chen Lin's letter, and my letter as well. Call Claudio Bossi at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or go to my website at miningstocks.com. Next week, our special guest is Dmitry Orlov. He's the author of Reinventing Collapse. We had him on our show once before, several months ago. He's talking about America following the footsteps of the Soviet Union when it declined, starting with its financial markets and then into the commercial markets and the breakdown of society in general. Let's hope he's wrong. Let's hope Professor uh, Folsom, who we had on a few minutes ago, is right and America will bounce back and we can overcome the difficulties. We've had many in the past and we have bounced back, so who knows, perhaps Professor Folsom is right. In closing, I want to thank our staff at Voice America for helping us again. A senior executive producer, Tacey Trump. She's absolutely tremendous. Ruben Colombe, operations manager, Justin Jackman, my engineer. All great people. Very, very big help to me. Uh, thank you, all of you, for making this show logistically possible. And thanks to each of you for listening to this show. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real.